Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Brendan here, vetgurus.com with Mark, episode 263. Thursday, October the 13th, 2022. Mark, are you there, Mark? Can you hear me, Mark? Are you there? I'm here, Brendan. <laughs> oh, <been>. excellent, excellent. <laughs> Good to I was hear leaving you here. hanging for a while. Yes, um, I thought you had yourself on pause, but you never seem to do that or make that mistake like I do, so... You I'm just more, lazy. I can't be bothered. Much more professional to than me, Mark. Much press more and unpress the mute button. Yes. Yes. No, I think you're just much more professional. <laughs> so welcome to all our new listeners and our old listeners and our young old listeners, Mark, and our subscribers. <laughs> we love welcome you all. to them all. We love you all. And head over to vetgurus.com, poke around there, look at the previous episodes if you haven't previously Jump onto the link there to our Etsy store. Say hello to our main sponsors there. Helps pay for our production costs. And then life is good, Mark. Um, I'll tell you what, Mark. I'll jump into straight some a little chit-chat about um, vet bits and pieces. Um, yeah. And maybe a review thrown in as well. How's that? I'm going to throw in chit-chat and review together. And that is... And we've spoken about this product before, Mark, the Vetronics brand ventilator, the small animal ventilator, exotics ventilator that's used by most, or I'd say most exotic vet clinics. And it's made by a company called Vetronics in the UK, in England. And good stuff. I mean, you probably remember, I think you may have bought, purchased one too when we did a bulk order here Definitely in Australia did. many years ago. Mine died a year or so ago, and I think I've mentioned it on on podcast around about a year ago, but our current one, Mark, the I flicked down the little on-off switch for the, and this is the latest model for the, to flick on the um, IPPV, it's a little toggle switch that sort of flips up again as you um, press it down. It wasn't activating the IPPV. Oh, no. So I wasn't happy, and... Uh, I sent it to a, a local distributor here, Sound Veterinary Instruments, and uh, the good news is, mate, they found they pulled it apart, and also it had a little funny battery error warning. I mean, we run it off the off the mains all the time, but it does have a built-in little internal battery as well. I presume that had just died, and but they pulled it apart, and they found it was just the soldering on the. Um, on that little toggle switch, so they replace the switch and fix this, put the toggle um, back in and soldered it and re- and put a new battery in there. And uh, it, I didn't realize it was covered by warranty, so that was a, oh, wow. a triple bonus there. And a big shout out to Ron and the team at Sound Veterinary Supplies, a local distributor. I didn't even, I, I did purchase that one through him when the old one died. It must have like a three or four year warranty. I'd have no idea, but so we ended up paying, I think sixty dollars for the freight both ways, um, and you know one week without it or whatever. So yeah, that was I was very happy about that. But it just reminded me that it's such a great product and good for the lazy veterinarian and the lazy surgeon. Mark um, connecting them up to that 
app. Um, that um, little ventilator there, it's fantastic. But I, thought, I reckon I had probably 10 years that I had a nurse bag in those bird and reptile patients um, before I purchased that original Vetronics one. But very reliable product. Look out for the toggle switch on a bit of that. <laughs> Excellent product and, yeah, very solid 8.6. I reckon, well, actually, I'm going to go out and limb 9 out of 10. Mark. Oh, no, 9.5 out of 10. 9.5 and it's an essential piece of kit. And having used one for the last oh, 10 years or whatever it is, uh, I can agree with you entirely. It, they are an awesome piece of gear and just about change the the nature of um, the way that your confidence uh, with respect to unusual and avian pet surgery, if you have one of these. Yep, quality product. And I'm with it a thousand percent. Yeah, it doesn't look, you know, and it's just a little black box there. It's a, the new new version is um, a little bit better with the digital sort of display compared with the old display they had. And but it works, it works, and it's um, I trust it. No? Um, I They're trust not horribly it. expensive bits of kit. I, I think what, compared what with other gear, you know, it's probably about. The price of, well, they, they've, I was going to, going to say a, a, a monitor, you know, a, a general anaesthetic monitor, but they've come down a lot. Probably a small ultrasound machine or something, um, maybe a bit less than that, a little portable ultrasound. I think they're like two or 3,000 Australian here. So they're not, you know, they're not super inexpensive, but gee, they, they, they last and they're, it's one piece of gear that, I certainly wouldn't do without, and it saves a lot of time and effort, and and make as you say confidence that makes you feel a lot more relaxed about your surgeries when you have that that reassuring little beep and the and the little puff of that um, little valve opening and, and closing as it's ventilating. The well, one of the reasons I love them, Brendan, is that I think I always got into trouble with uh, anaesthetics with birds and and small patients because. They, a lot of those animals will breathe at the same rate but decrease their uh, the extent of ventilation. And so if you're just monitoring the, the, the timing of breaths, you can be under a false apprehension that everything's okay when they're actually getting deeper and deeper and, and then when they hit the point where they decompensate, you're in trouble, whereas the volume of each ventilatory excursion in IPBV is is stable. So you don't have that increased variable of how much they're filling their lungs and how much anaesthetic gas they're getting that's taken away. And removing one of those variables just makes a difference to my surgery. Yep, I agree. So that's a pretty long review there, a um, bit of chit-chat, but, you know, gear breaks down and... It was fantastic that I got it repaired and they picked it up the same day. And and we know we of, of all the wonderful things about you, one of the most wonderful is how much you love a saving. Yes. Well, we all love a saving there. I was surprised. I said, I thought, oh, yeah, here goes another few hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or if I'm really unlucky, I have to buy a new machine. Uh, but it was happy days, Mark. It was happy days. So there we go. Um, I'll jump into our first news story, and I don't know whether we've we've discussed this previous topic before, Mark. About we had it as a main topic, didn't we? As as 
Wild wildlife as pets. But yeah. I don't know whether we did we discuss this particular one. We no, we didn't. We haven't. Good. We haven't excellent. Yes. Do well, not good for the people, but excellent. Um, deer are not good pets. Pets, Mark. <laughs> Which damn obvious there. This is in um, Victoria here in Australia. A Victorian couple were attacked by their pet deer. Ex- it's a sad story. Exchange goodbyes after realizing one or both of them would not survive. The husband did die. Mark he suffered fatal puncture wounds from the deer's antlers in 2019. It was a deer they'd raised from a from a fawn, and his wife was flown to hospital for treatment, and she survived. And the coroner has recommended local councils consider making registrations of pet deer compulsory. Or should they go further and say they should not allow just them? Just ban them. Yeah, yep, they should and just it, ban them. Because the deer's behaviour market changed in the days before the incident and the man was no longer prepared to go into the enclosure and it was believed that he was trying to untangle the deer's antlers from a fence when he was attacked and pinned to the ground. And his wife and their son ran to his age, bringing stones, Mark, timber, a crossbow. And a crossbow. <laughs> yep. And um, they they were escalating, Mark, escalating. Um, and then the son ran to get a gun from the shed. But when he heard, when he returned, he heard his mother scream and she tried to put herself between the deer and the husband and the animal turned on her as well. Uh, but, yeah, it was um, paramedic, happened to live next door and went to, to help and fired three shots at the deer, which did not seem to be infected. So I don't think the paramedic was a very good <laughs> shot. Um, let's Glad he didn't hit um, hit one of the um, family there. And he helped the woman from the enclosure before returning for a husband who died at the scene. So, And as a side note, Mark, more than 20 people had gone to Victorian Hospital Emergency Department with injuries between 2010 and 2020. So there we go, Mark. Um, yeah, I think we could have covered it in that um, uh you know our thoughts on wildlife as pets in that that recent um, recent episode episode two hundred and sixty and this being episode two hundred and sixty three so it wasn't very long ago but yeah another classic example of why we shouldn't be um, encouraging this and yeah, it's just crazy isn't it what how, how you know how should we be having this you know um, that. The, the coroner also recommended Agriculture Victoria circulate a safety warning about information about best practice for de-antlering haunt deer before the mating season. So perhaps we should be banning them, is all I can say. And we, um, yeah, so a sad story, Mark. But I think the other thing, like, Brendan, is that um, that uh, deer are becoming an increasingly uh, prevalent feral animal here in yes. uh, southeastern Australia, and so it's more likely that people will come across an abandoned or injured fawn um, of one of the species that are feral here and then take it on, um, as people sometimes do of their own accord, and be caught in this situation. So I think it's good to publicise the fact that they do become, they can be wonderful when they're little bambies yeah, living up to their world of Disney. Resistant, yes. Yep. But then uh, once they become adults and get into that um, mating period um, and they haven't been de-antled, particularly the big red deers, they are really dangerous animals and they shouldn't be kept as pets. But um, my 
Um, speaking of uh, feral animals and um, Australian native wildlife, I'm keen to talk to you about um, our federal government, our new federal Labor government. Um, and for those of you who are overseas, the Labor are the more progressive, I suppose, side of politics here in Australia. Um, and, uh, and they have made a, a pledge Brendan, they have pledged there will be no more extinctions. And they have um, done this, uh, well, I don't know what the best way to describe this is. Let's just say um, that uh, the Threatened Species Action Plan is ambitious. Um, and since colonisation, Australia has lost 39 species of animals, of mammals alone. Um, this represents uh, nearly 40% of the global mammal uh, loss, the global extinction of mammals since, uh, you know, since uh, 1788. Um, so a hugely disproportionate um, extinction rate our continent has, our country has, um, and the need for action. Our uh, Minister for the Environment is quite correct, um, and the need for action has never been greater. I will not, she says, shy away from difficult problems or accept environmental decline and extinction as inevitable. The only problem with this, Brendan, is that um, the federal government is spending uh, as assessed by Professor Brendan Wintle in his 2019 study, um, uh, he, he suggested that about $1.6 billion Australian needs to be spent each year halting species loss and recover nationally listed and threatened species. Um, and the government was spending about 7% of that, about... 220 million is being spent at the moment um and well it uh, what uh, it seems to me not to be nearly enough um and look the awful thing about this is that it is there are many things in politics and particularly in uh, in terms of conservation and whatnot that are politically um, driven and that uh, aren't tightly associated with um with uh, money, but this is not one to get these species stable and ecosystems stable. Um, they really just have to spend the bucks if they really want to do it. And I, I worry that this is one of those, um, you know, we're going to make a big announcement. We're not going to uh, have any more extinctions. We're going to prohibit extinctions. Um, but are they just saying something without actually you know, putting the money behind it to make it happen, Brendan. That's what I ask. Yes, I agree. And I think a lot of people will see the headlines and not go any further and think, gee, that, they're doing a good job. They're, you know, they're going to stop extinctions completely. And they've thrown a lot of money at it, haven't they? Yeah. 244 million. Yeah. Although that um, Professor Brendan Mark um, did say, as you mentioned, and he went on to say, we need approximately $2 billion a year to ensure or minimise the chances of any more animals or plants becoming extinct. So, yes, I think it's playing a bit of politics, obviously. Um, and But looking on the positive side, it's, it's better than better that they are at least announcing something like this than, than not announcing it. And uh, then they've gone on record too, haven't they, Mark? And 
and that might come back to bite them if they don't don't um, help try and reverse the wildlife losses and and uh, you're such a glass half full guy i love your positive let's attitude see what let's hope tomorrow. let's hope you're right lots of smiling um typical poly pictures there mark of um, um, with the corroboree frogs yes and and an announcement at taronga zoo there um, as well yes so let's not get too cynical let's try and keep it up <laughs> yes it is politics um, to, um but yeah let's hope it have, we can look back on this mark in a year or two and we might make another comment on it and we'll see what happens in the future let's jump into our main topic mark and this is something we covered previously but it's a very common question or questions that um, i certainly get from veterinarians about surgical approaches mark to mammary tumors in rodents so removing mammary tumors in rats and mice and you and i both know that they're extremely common very rats and mice especially those undesexed ones and you can log into our website at vetgurus.com and have a look at previous episodes where you talk about the etiology of it all and how it all happens and how it's tied in with the hormones etc but this week mark we're going to concentrate on well just tips and tricks i suppose uh, because uh, probably one of the most common questions as i prefaced myself from vets is what's your approach to the surgery of removing a mammary tumor in, in a mouse or a rat and what helps prevent them self-traumatizing is, is usually the second part of that question, Mark. And so, Brendan, let me just ask you, you being our resident um, small uh, small mammal expert, let me ask you a few questions. What is your, um, your sort of like anesthetic, your broad anesthetic protocol with these? Ah, good question, Mark, as usual. <laughs> so minimal, minimal, as usual for most of these unusual pets that are brought into the clinic, minimal fasting, if any fasting at all. So the animal is brought into the clinic in the morning of the surgery with food in its enclosure, and we will usually starve that ratty for anything from half an hour to, you know, three hours or so before the surgery. So it's it's not starved overnight, that's number one. Uh, and number two, pre-med wise, yeah, my, my go-to pre-med for these little rodents is it, 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 to help provide some analgesia as well as methadone, um, which I've used in them for many, many years and I find it very effective and uh, providing both a pre-medicant effect and also helping with, with um, helping with the analgesia. analgesic a- aspect, which is a, a real key factor Um as you'll see with going through things and then i just gas them down mark with the isofluorine and that's a that's the brendan technique is really just um hurry up and do it and we pre-oxygenate them for a short period of time with a little mask not over their head but sort of near them then pop the mask over them and then the nurse will be holding the little ratty or mouse and then we crank up the iso to five percent pretty damn quick mark um, there are methods of putting them in a in a little induction chamber that work, also works quite well or the slow and steady technique mark it'll be interesting to see which technique you use um, where you just slowly increase the isofluorine percentage by a quarter or half a percent over several minutes which technique do you use 
Um, more frequently, I use the incremental increase. Uh, I always, it, it, and I know this is going to be a theoretical worry, and I can never tell you those times where I have just zapped the ISO up to 5%. Um, I've never seen a problem, um, but I do worry at those high isoflurane percentages about um, dropping their blood pressure very low. Um, and, of course, you know, my surgery, there's always a lot of blood uh, leaking out to lower the blood pressure during the procedure. So I'm just very cautious about anything that would add to that. Um, and so I do talk to incrementally wind them up. It is a little bit, it's plus and minus, I reckon, swings and merry-go-rounds because um, I do worry that they get more anxious if you leave them, you know, restrained in the, in the, the, the mask or chamber for longer periods of time as you incrementally wind it up. But um, that's the technique I've used. Yep. And I, I agree with you, even though I often just do the crash induction, although I must say that I start with probably going from zero, that pre-oxygenation, and then probably up to about two or so for um, 15, 30 seconds. And depending on how that individual's reacting, if they're you know reasonably chilled and they're not one of those really panicky ones, then I, I may just continue continue doing the incremental um otherwise i might crank it straight up so yeah i do vary it a little bit but yeah i i, I totally agree with you and that the, the potential risk of of going from zero to hero mark means you're not <laughs> hero if you're not careful um so yes but that's that's my particular um technique there mark and then i really I like i really like the pre-oxygenation brendan i think that's a underestimated um extra insulator against problems during anesthesia if you give you know if you load up their uh oxygen uh, if you load up their hemoglobin and myoglobin with as much oxygen as you can before you induce them it markedly decreases the risks so tell me once you've got them anesthetized um uh, what, what um what surgical gear do you have on hand to go ahead with the procedure well <laughs> there's, there's a few oh, options. Obviously, your ventilator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, well, not for these ones. But um, yeah. Well, stepping back a tiny bit, it well surgical gear is it, it includes the dental gear, Mark, because we want to yes. look in that mouth as usual, and we want to clean out that mouth because we have a patient that might have stashed a bit of food in that mouth, and we don't want a little little plug of a, a food pellet. A, or a food item that um, blocks that uh, blocks that um, trachea mark um, because I, I'm not as a rule I'm just having them on the um, mask um, so I make sure I clean out that that um, mouth you can intubate them but it's a bit of a bit of a problematic procedure and we won't go into details um, today with that we might talk about intubating all the small mammals at some stage mate uh, and then so having a good look in the mouth and then yeah it, i'll just have a t couple of little we call them exotic one and exotic two kits um, which is just all the fairly fine instruments that we use with them um, i tend not to use mark um, these days although i use it reasonably um, commonly for other other um, surgeries the Lone Star retractors mark it's, it's not sort of a, a routine one I use for these um, it's just the way I do things with them um, and, and it's really just having a, a, a fairly 
small little scalpel blade there when i like the little curved um 15s or whatever they are um if that if that's a smaller one i can, I can never remember and and little fine almost like dissection little um, scissors mark. Um, I tend to make it fairly small. I'm jumping into technique here. As smaller incision as I can in the skin. So because we're do almost... You, do you... Go on. No, go on. I was going to... do that, that incision, do you make like a... Um, a Curvy linear or a... Well, no, no. A, um an ellipse. Do you take some tissue out over the top of the mass to decrease mm, yes, the dead sometimes, space? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Um, assuming it's a rat that I'm reasonably confident it may be one of those benign fibroadenomas, and I'm just trying to sort of remove it almost a little bit like we might do with the lipomas in the dog's mark. Um, so uh, it, it may just be an incision directly over the middle of that um, tumour. Um, with with one hand, my thumb and my forefinger grasping the tumor tumor beneath it to sort of pop it up into the you know surgical site and, and making an incision, probably only about a third of the of of the you know diameter of the of the mass mark, because I want to try and keep that skin incision as small as I can traditionally um, because I think that's one of the key factors with especially with the larger tumors to try and ensure that the animal's not going to be annoying that skin when post-operatively and then I basically you know, slowly 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 dissecting um, around the tumor um, a bit like we might do with a lipoma and its little capsule and uh, clamping off any vessels that I might think are significant and with that um, using the cheating method again, using the, the, the vascular clips, the liger clips or the hemoclips um, work fantastically and they save you a lot of time where you can just go bang and the liger clip is on there rather than trying to reach for a clamp and clamp it there and, uh, you know, making sure I've, I've, I've removed um, that whole thing in situ. And usually, you know, those benign ones, you, can, you do see that, you know, pretty obvious demarcation between the neoplastic tissue and the normal tissue there mark but yeah this, it does get to a size as you sort of hinted that you end up if you just make one one little incision there that you end up with a lot of floppy skin there so yes um, there are ones where you want to take out a, a chunk of that skin tissue there in that sort of elliptical sort of form there that, that, that then when you pull it back together it 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 we don't have that saggy skin there, Mark. Yes, um, I, I do. Um, I do do that as well. So it's sort of picking your cases with which ones you need to use that particular technique to to remove the tumor. And if it's one that that you know, obviously one that you're concerned that maybe not those classic benign tumors um i'm getting more aggressive and doing a a wider resection um around it and trying to do a a, a, a resection you know deep and around all sides of, of some normal tissue and i suppose the ones where that is is more likely to it occur would be those little mice mark the mice um because a greater percentage of those are, are the um pretty nasty um tumors yeah what techniques do you i mean as you're sort of i was just thinking as as i was just in my mind going through the technique of just removing a standard um 
mid-size tumor in one of these ratties, Mark. What, what's um, what's your method? Similar to that, or, or not similar? Anything else? Yeah, that you no, do no. That the, I've missed? the only things I was going to say was that um, that uh, they grow rapidly, the fibroadenomas, and so um, don't don't like get in quickly for the surgery because the smaller they are, um, the easier I find to to satisfy all the requirements we want to achieve to minimize the chance of trauma after the surgery those big ones um the particularly the ones where there's floppy skin and i'm trying to estimate you know my target is to have no tension on those skin sutures when they're closed um and uh and those big ones it's sometimes difficult to judge how much to take to make sure you have no tension and sometimes because they involve spaces between the legs, it can be really difficult to like close down the dead space and make sure you've got no tension on the skin. So get in early is my tip. Yes. And and the other one, I think you're. you're I was going to ask you. Um, you know, all these things that you're trying to do a design, keep the incision small, make sure you've got minimal tension. You know, no excessive tension on the skin closure. Um, I think the the uh, you know I, these are some of the surgeries that I avoid using my radio surgery on because I think zapping those blood vessels they they often have adjacent nerves and I worry that um, stimulating those uh, with the radio surgery might add to the discomfort uh, once they're awake. Um, there are times too where I'll use a, a little bit of um, uh, Emla at the time that we're deciding to, you know, particularly those small ones and, like you said, about a third of the size of them, um, I might put some emla on the skin to try and, and uh, decrease the stimulation of the skin so that uh, wind-up is less likely to occur after the procedure. Do you use any local on yours, Brendan? Typically not, um, but on occasion I do, Mark. So, but... Um yeah, good thought with with some of them. Um, and those points there, especially the one about um, the tension bit. And yes, as as we know, the vast majority of these tumors will occur in the axillary region or the um, inguinal region. So we have to be a bit careful. And I think that's one of the key factors in trying to stop self trauma postoperatively is is trying to avoid leaving anything that is causing a bit of a, a, a pinch or a stretch um, where the ratty or the mouse will be thinking, hey, that feels funny and it's tight, and then they start attacking that region there. And it's probably one of the reasons why I minimize, I do minimal or, or sometimes none at none. all um, yes. subcutaneous sutures and, and further internal sutures. So I try to minimize the sutures. I might just do one sort of bridging suture across cross with the internal um, tissue there almost like the, the the loose fatty tissue there mark just to sort of um, close a little bit of that dead space um, but I'd, I'd be doing a hell of a lot less than I would with a you know a dog or a cat or another species with with you know several layers etc um, and then exactly. speaking of layers my layers. closure of Technique of choice for the skin would be intradermal with these, um, which can which be suture material. Which suture material are you using? Oh, I can't. Well, um, 
know, one of the mon- um, monofilament um, rapidly absorbing ones. I've got several of them. And um, a swedged on needle, reverse cutting needle, um, typically anything from a three zero to five zero um, size mark. So pretty small. Um, and a uh, little bit of patience and um, hopefully a steady hand um, because it can be frustrating, can't it? Because we don't, they don't have a mass of, of, of the, the dermis itself is not particularly um, wide. <laughs> um, so it can be a challenge and sometimes there's a few swear words thrown around if it's a particularly difficult case or, or a very, you know, a young patient. You know, <laughs> we can sometimes see as I mean, the, the, the younger rats and mice that, don't have any of that sort of, you know, dermal, subdermal fat, and they're even trickier, aren't they, to try and close that. But I attempt an intradermal mark, is, and, and the vast majority I manage to get it, um, and then plus or minus. I, 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 so of many it. of my um, intradermals end up some bizarre hybrid because, you know, they are so thin and I poke through and yeah, pull it yeah. apart and put yeah, it back together yeah. and then I give yeah. up because I'm taking like 45 times as long to <laughs> close the wound as I did to get it out. Yeah, yeah. I I, I, I see where you're coming from, Mark. I know it <laughs> very well. But and I've come I'm, to depend. Yes, you're yes gonna, then I might I'm, use a little bit of tissue glue. Um, which after, after solves that, so yeah. many of my problems. <laughs> And the key factor then, we've mentioned it before, is try, try and use a minimal amount with it. Um, just just remember in the back of your head that it's basically a cyanoacrylate. So we're using a super glue and we're not trying to, we're not trying to, you know, stick that rat to the ceiling so it will never fall off. Um, we're trying to just gently oppose the skin. Um, with so, Brendan, so- I found one of the tips with the cyanoacrylate cements, the surgical tissue cements I found useful is to draw it up in, uh, you know, a 30-unit insulin syringe with a 29-gauge needle on it, and the drops that produces are much – I can use those much better and place them much more accurately than if I just turn the bottle upside down and, you know, nothing's coming out, nothing's coming out. Oh, no, now I've glued the rat to the table. Yeah, Um, great point, Mark, and I must admit I – was doing that for a fair period of time, but I'm pretty slack these days. And I tend to do the the, the latter technique. Um, the in between one, although they don't, I don't think they provide it anymore. They used to provide that little pipette, clear pipette, see through that attaches to the tip of that um, bottle there, and that that disposable little pipette, and that sort of does the equivalent of what you were recommending there. So, yes, um, and and try not to get any of that into the. Um, Pass that subder- the, the dermal space into the subcutaneous, into the body. Now, Brendan, um, once you've done the perfect closure with no tension and a very, very thin smear of tissue cement, um, what about your post-operative analgesia? Yeah, well, post-operative analgesia is part of trying to stop this animal rip into itself. And that's also um, a, a, a probably a little tip, and I think it helps. Um, I might, it's a bit like a mark theory. Is before I put that tissue glue on there, I just use a bit of dilute chlorhexane water and hold the wound closed if if it isn't completely closed with that um, intradermal, and clean it. Um, get all that blood off there. Um, if you've got any blood that's um, um, that you've happened to catch a vessel or whatever, because I think not making that surgery site clean it's not the rat they're pretty fastidious aren't they and they want to just 
clean everything um, on them. So, so remove any of the um, blood or, or ideally any smell of any sort of um, prep materials on there, Mark, if you can. I think that 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 might help the process. Letting them, getting them feeding pretty damn quick and distracting them, you know, in that immediate post-operative period. So as soon as they're waking up and they wake up pretty damn quick, don't they, once we turn that um, gas off with those ones that are masked down. Um, throwing the food in there, you know, that lunch pack that the owner's been told to bring in with the pet and, um, you know, even giving them some tempting other foods or smearing their, you know, little paws with a bit of Nutrigel or something. So we're, we're just trying to distract them during that immediate period where, you know, no matter how much analgesia we've laid into them, um, you know, I think any animal post that immediate post-surgery period is 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 still probably going to feel a little bit uncomfortable at least. Um, so we're trying to distract them though. Um, and apart from that, yeah, it's going home on. And this is where um, the Emla thing comes in, Mark. And that's my um, thoughts. I've swayed from, you know, do we then smear that surgery site with Emla? Um, around that period as well to sort of deaden that whole area or if we deaden the whole area is it going to make that ratty think this feels weird I'm going to rip into it and I can't feel anything so I'll keep chewing because there's no feel into that skin I'm, I'm eating um, so um, I'm, I'm a little bit worried of, 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 of slathering, slathering the whole area with you know um, amylor or, or infiltrating it with local anaesthetic um, lignocaine or whatever with there but it goes home on in in, in my practice anyway it goes home on a non-steroidal um, typically meloxicam um, for, for several days five to seven days or so with those ones um, and and touch wood mark um, the vast majority of them do do um, extremely well um, and you know I, I took removed a really large mammary tumor late last week um, and which prompted me to think about this again as the topic this week and the the owner's affair drive away so he's been sending in pictures of it and it was a decent one right in that inguinal area right on that inner thigh so um but it's healing fantastically so um most of them um do very well mark um with with that and you know the other question a lot of people um often will ask me is that whole process of saying how do we stop a rat or a mouse chewing the wound is the selection of the, that suture material and also the what method we use to close the skin. And I, and I think, as you and I have sort of hinted at, it, it's more important to make sure that we have, you know, adequate analgesia on board. You know, that's the most important th the reason why they may not, may decide to chew open their wound is if they haven't got decent analgesia there. Um, yes, ideally you don't have things poking out, so... That's why we tend to try and use the intradermal or the, or the tissue glue instead of the more traditional, you know, simple interrupted or whatever um, external sutures that the rat might think, what the hell's this thing? I'm going to chew on it. But having said all that, there are occasional ones that I see, Mark, that are a bit of a nightmare rat, and it's hard to predict those ones, isn't it? Um, that ends up within a full body suit, um, that, 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 that a straight jacket, you know, from axillary to to Inguinal region, you know, and that's all sorts of, you know, um, homemade devices and, and methods, and that can include little little braces along their back and, and vet wrap and all sorts of stuff too. Yeah, um, I freaked out the first time I saw yep. um, one of those on a rat. I think it was at a UPAV conference in a in a 
um, in a presentation and um, and I thought, oh, my goodness, they're not going to cope with those body suits. But it's surprising um, how well they do cope with them and they only need them on for a short period of time to just get past that um, that first part of healing and the rest of the healing tends to go pretty well. Um, yeah. And so it can, I, I commend and, them as well. Yeah, and, and there are... <clears throat> the quite expensive but there are some commercial little body suits uh, made specifically for laboratory animals um, especially rabbits but they have one that makes um that, that's made for rats as well and i've gone blank on the the company it's a european or u.s company that produces them um, and they're, they're they're quite good as well but they're not not inexpensive mark and you have to buy direct from them yeah so it's and and the ones that do repent to themselves and and continue to repent to themselves can be a can be a challenge can't they and and i suppose my only final comment with the subject with those ones yeah you need to go back to square one with those and decide at what point do you decide i'm not going to be a hero in this mess even if it's a suspected fibroadenoma a benign tumor in a rat um, is one that it's not surgical because we've got a high chances that rat ripping into itself because that mass is so big so i think it's important to say look yeah this one's i'm not going to take it to surgery because we're not going to make it better and it's going to be a nightmare post-operatively despite how good a surgeon or not i am <laughs> And I think you're right. And I think picking those cases, um, you know, is a big part. We know that a lot of those small mammals have uh, personality types that will just mean that some of them are going to be disastrous. And having a bit of a plan that way, um, making a bit of an assessment and trying to avoid those most highly strung and sensitive patients and not put them through a procedure that's going to be worse is not a bad choice. Yep. So hopefully we've given a few little tips for the approach to these mammary tumours in in rats and mice, and you know ideally we're we're helping prevent them by doing the the surgical or chemical desexing, which should help prevent the development of those. So we're getting onto the clients early with that. But um, I'd be interested in our listeners, Mark. Um, send us an email about your techniques and experiences with mammary tumour removal in these little rodents, Mark, and. Um, We'll probably, as usual, um, get some emails from people that um, tell us that um, this is the right technique to use and we're all doing it wrong, Mark. I'm not sure that will be the which I'm used to having people say to me. So, um, yeah, hey. we're not, we're <laughs> Look, not too I, I, old. We're old, but we're not too old to learn. Uh, one of the th wonderful things about the podcast, Brendan, is that it's put us in touch with people all over the planet who have a different perspective. And it was smarter than you and I. <laughs> so I think, I send think, us your messages so we can catch up. Absolutely. Vetgurus at gmail.com. And with that, we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.